Good morning, everybody. How's everyone feeling this morning? Dead silence. Some fingers up, some down. Welcome to the last day of pain week and the first session, 7 a.m. in the morning. This is uh, course PTH-01, words, words Wisely Chosen, Avoiding the Unintended Nocebo Effect. A couple of housekeeping items, if you would, please silence your cell phones. And any feedback today for our faculty or for the course can be best provided through the pain week app. We are also recording the session, so if you would, please hold all comments and questions until the end, and then wait until uh, someone runs you a microphone so that you can formally ask a question in the microphone. Our faculty today is Dr. Catherine, but she goes by Kate, Schottmeyer, and she is a physical therapy program coordinator in pain management at the VA healthcare system in beautiful San Francisco. With that said, please help me welcome our distinguished speaker, Dr. Kate Schottmeyer. So, brains are interesting, right? Notice the title. That is wrong. Biochemicals should not be there. And yet, I looked at these slides over and over and over and over before submitting them. Never caught that. It should be biomechanical, actually. And it's not consistent with what you have in your literature for um, the agenda and all the descriptors of this course. That being said, I'm really glad to see you all here, and thank you for getting up this early. Uh, I especially want to thank Corey Blickenstaff because he's one of our esteemed physical therapy track speakers late in the day, and I highly encourage you to go to all those talks. I'll give you a little rundown. But Corey got in at 2 or 3 in the morning last night, was delayed by the storm weather, and he's here. So he wins extra points. <laughs> So uh, I am a physical therapist, and I've been coming to this conference since 2012 and been speaking the last couple years, and I'm really honored to have been asked by Deborah to put together a physical therapy-specific track. I'm really excited that that's the direction of things because we in the rehab specialty arena have been working with pain our whole careers, right? That's mostly why people come to see a physical therapist, and now we're really shifting our focus, trying to broaden our view not only in our uh, professional education, but also in how we think about pain and how we talk about pain. Um, and later you'll hear more from my colleagues, um, Sandy Hilton and Corey Blickenstaff. Matt Booth is also here, although I think he, um, Matt, are you here this morning? I haven't seen him. All right. Uh, I think that he submitted a proposal um, for pain week before I was asked to organize the PT speakers, so I can't take credit for, for what he put together. Um, so. You're going to hear from Sandy Hilton about exercise prescription, and that's not just specific to physical therapists or people who directly prescribe exercise, but it's, it's really applicable to anybody who's working with somebody who thinks who you think you need to move more. Um, and she's also going to speak later in the afternoon on treating pelvic pain, both genders. Um, she's really a specialist in her field and does a fabulous job. And then, as I said, at the end of the day, Corey Blickenstaff is going to teach us more about a novel approach to movement and tell us a little about what he does specifically um, to get people moving when they're really afraid to do so. So I don't have any financial disclosures, but I do need to say that I work for the federal government, and nothing I say here can ever um, represent the official position of the Department of Veterans Affairs. But I do have a lot of opinions, and I do have a lot of interpretations on the research that I read. Um, so I certainly encourage everybody here to question my interpretation of things. That's, that's the sort of discussion that helps us all do better. And one colleague who, uh, whom I had invited and couldn't come, Jason Silvernail, is active duty military, and he got called to duty this weekend, unfortunately can't speak. Um, but crossing the chasm is a phrase that he came up with, and I think it's really apt. It continues to be. I think he coined this phrase years ago already, but crossing the chasm to me really just means we are in a time of major change in how we approach pain care. We now have plenty of data to show us that what we've done hasn't worked well. And if you've been to any of the resilience talks this week, which I think were fabulous, they emphasize that what we have focused on in our pain treatment, uh, focusing on impairments and focusing on disability or focusing on really the, the biggest risk factors, that hasn't seemed to gotten us to, hasn't seemed to have gotten us very far. Uh, and as a biomechanically trained person, as a movement impairment trained person and professional, I used to speak very differently to my patients before I started treating people who had persistent pain every day. My entire caseload is comprised of people who have tried physical therapy, sometimes for years, and who haven't done any better for it. And 
based on all the research we have about pain, I just can't justify using the same approach to describing a pain problem as I did when I got out of school. And beyond that, I actually think we can do harm based on how we describe a pain problem to a patient. So I'm not going to ask anybody here to change what they do, but I'm certainly going to challenge you to think differently about how to describe what it is you do and how that modulates pain. What's the mechanism behind it, and is it plausible? So we know that self-care, self-management is, is the most important factor in helping somebody get better. Self-efficacy is, is one of the most reliable predictive factors for long-term outcomes. And I wonder how many of us are inadvertently in our efforts, our best efforts to help somebody better understand their pain condition, how many of us are inadvertently adding to the pain problem and the distress and the fear and the anxiety? So again, don't change what you do, but change how you talk about it, and let's try to support each other. There are so many different ways that we can try to be better at what we do. There are lots of interventions that are um, innovative and new and great technology, uh, new molecular derivatives for synthetic medications that we're prescribing, uh, all kinds of things that we can do, and policy change to try to reapproach how we how we care for folks in pain that'll take a while but words that we use can change tomorrow and just like we ask all our patients to change how they think about their pain just like we ask them to change their behaviors every day that requires practice and so I'm going to challenge every clinician here to practice saying things differently because I can guarantee old habits die hard and ask me how I know I step in it every single day with my patients so our learning obje objectives this morning are to be uh, to review some of the research on why I think this is really important, how it can, how our language choices can impact our clinical outcomes, and then explain how those interactions in the clinic are are really representative of the research that we have on this, and provide some alternatives, at least a few. And I'm happy to. Um, be approached any time during the remainder of today, the last day of the conference. Thank you for everyone who stayed. Um, if you want to have a, a back and forth, a brainstorming session, um, tell me what you like to say. All of these things are productive, in my opinion. So I'm going to start with helping us remember. If anybody came to my talk on Tuesday morning, you'll be familiar with this slide. And I, I was alerted to this research study, very old. Look up in the top corner, 1985. Very old, and still gives us really great food for thought. So Laura Mosley is the person who turned me on to this study, and I think it's fascinating. So what was done in this research study? It was a small study, but these patients were dental patients, and they were told, we're going to do a dental scaling procedure, gum scaling. That by itself is not pleasant. But then we're going to test how sensitive that tissue is 10 minutes after the procedure, and 60 minutes after procedure, we're going to zap you with a little electrode, and you tell us how much it hurts, right? Sounds pleasant. And what the patients were told was, we're either going to give you something that won't do anything, although this is 1985, we know placebo is actually not inert. We know our body has a response to any expectation, good or bad. So we're going to give you something that might do nothing, or we're going to give you one of the most powerful drugs we have, or we're going to give you something that would reverse any endogenous opiates that your body might produce in order to respond to this procedure. So you get one of those three conditions, we're not going to tell you which one you're in. And the dentists, on the other hand, were told about two potential conditions. They were told either your patients are going to get naloxone plus a placebo, uh, pardon me, or they're going to get fentanyl plus placebo or fentanyl plus naloxone. So they have two different arms. In one arm, their patients have, hello, is this showing up? Always have some technical difficulties, all right. In one arm, the dentists are, are presuming that the patients they're working on have at least a 50% chance of receiving analgesia. And in the other arm, they think those people have 0% chance of receiving analgesia, right? And what mattered most in this study was not who got what, but what the dentists thought was happening. Purely that. And they didn't actually say anything. So you don't even have to say anything for your beliefs to have an impact on somebody else. So these dentists were observed on camera. These sessions were recorded. The procedures were recorded. And a third party, neutral party, was asked to review which dentist do you think 
thought their patients had analgesia or not. There was no discernible body language, no, nothing, no giveaways. And then the, the, the dentists were asked later, who do you think got what? And that's what mattered most. So when the dentist thought that the patient they were working on had a 50% chance of placebo, or a 50% chance of analgesia, they had less pain, that's in green, dotted line. And not just less, but significantly less. So don't kid yourselves, we have a lot of power here. And what are our beliefs? At least in my professional circles, beliefs about posture, beliefs about symmetry, beliefs about lifting and mechanics, these are all really, really heavy beliefs and we repeat them over and over. I actually do an experiment every time I have a cohort of new patients in our 12-week rehab program. I stand in front of them and I bend over like the woman you see here and I say, what do you think of this? And each and every time, 90% repeal, they go back, their hands go up and say, don't do that. And I stand up and say, why not? Please tell me why. And you know what I hear? Well, because every doctor I had, every physical therapist I had, every trainer I ever had, they all tell you not to. And I ask you, clinicians, why are we telling patients this? And we can have a debate about this later on. If somebody's picking up an empty cardboard box or an empty bin like this woman in the picture or a laundry basket, even a full laundry basket, why do we need to scare them? What truly is behind that recommendation? I don't get it. They're not lifting 200 pounds. And even if they were lifting 200 pounds, if that body was trained and conditioned to lift 200 pounds, the form wouldn't matter nearly so much as we tell them it does. And I'm arguing that that's actually a dangerous position to take because it can have really lasting effects. And we're going to get into the research about that. So the association between healthcare professional beliefs and our patients' beliefs is incredible. Like it or not, what you think and what you say will stick with somebody. And Ben Darlow and his group have done tremendous research in this area. And from this particular study, which as you saw on the last slide, 17 studies were reviewed, eight different countries, six different disciplines. And here are the findings. There's strong evidence that healthcare professional beliefs about back pain are directly associated with the beliefs of their patients. What we think becomes what they think. And healthcare professionals, if their attitudes and beliefs are associated with um, biomechanical orientations, or if they themselves, the clinicians, have elevated fear avoidance beliefs. We heard this week someone else saying, you know, if it hurts, don't do it anymore. That's a commonly held belief and position that, that a lot of healthcare providers take. Maybe not you here in the audience, but it happens a lot. And those healthcare professionals with biomechanical orientation or the, who encourage people to not move if it hurts actually are more likely to advise all kinds of things that we know are associated with really poor outcomes. The more time away from work, the less likely it is you'll go back and then the higher potential pain-related disability you have. So Darlow again and his group did a different kind of qualitative research study and uh, you know, we all hate Dr. Google. I know we do. We don't want our patients going to see Dr. Google ever, but they do it every single day, and they come back and tell you about it and how they want to try the new stuff they found. But believe it or not, everything they hear from their families and friends, everything they get off the Internet, it doesn't outweigh what a, what a clinician says. And like it or not, physicians have the most weight of any other healthcare professional. So I would really like it if people stop making my job so hard because I've got to undo a lot of what is said out there in the people I treat. So compared to all those different factors, actually clinicians have the biggest impact. And I'm thrilled to say that the biopsychosocial model has definitely been seeping in and, and really integrated into, uh, gotten integrated into our practice and especially at this conference here, over the last five years that I've been coming, I've seen a really significant shift in the attitudes and orientations and the language that people use. Despite that, Allegretti and that group in 20, uh, 2010 got the same results. What they did is had a, a several patients and doctors sit down together and go through the motions of a physical exam and a subjective interview, and then immediately after that interaction, the two parties were interviewed and questioned on what their takeaway was. What were their impressions of that? So even when the physicians were saying, boy, this person has a complex picture here, and there are a lot of factors modulating pain, the patients were very biomechanically focused. And this is thanks to us, uh, we professionals who have been fostering this kind of belief system, and then all the things that get perpetuated on the internet don't help, 
as I said, they're not the strongest factor, but our patients are really, really well trained to think in biomechanical terms only, especially when it comes to spines. And I wanna be clear in saying biomechanics matter, but geez, it's not the only thing, right? And what about patients' beliefs, right? So this is an interesting study on what people believe about what goes on in a chiropractic manipulation. And I'm gonna go back, actually here, I'm gonna make it dark for a second, and so several of you are probably speed readers and you already read that, but what do you think happens when we hear a pop in the back? Is it because our bones are slopping around and slipping over each other? Be brave, one person says yes, two people, all right. Is it because ligaments are wobbling around and they're jumping back and forth like guitar strings? Perhaps, right? Anyone know about cavity? Cavitation? Who knows cavitation? Not enough, boy. All right, so we now have concrete evidence that those noises are gaseous bubbles moving between joint spaces, and they can be very audible. And what's cool is our brain puts that together and says, ooh, this is the sensation I'm gonna give you, something moved, right? And then pair that with the language that's been taught. Even when people have never had spinal manipulation by a chiropractor, by a physical therapist, they still think this is what's happening because this, this is the myth that's been perpetuated. And it was logical at one time before we had really the technology to prove what's going on in there and what's not going on in there. So look at the respondents here, right? Still, almost half think that vertebral repositioning is happening. This is a problem, right? And if you think, uh, some of the clinicians, I would love to talk to you about um, those who thought it's tendon possibly moving around or, or bones actually slipping around on each other. Um, I'd love to know the studies that show that. So back in 2009, I, I still think this is a strong research study, qualitative study. Uh, Karen Barker and her colleagues investigated what words we use commonly in the clinic that we probably don't give two thoughts about and that might actually impact our patients' outcomes quite directly because they carry this stuff around. And I have a story about this. I recently had in the clinic, and in our clinic we do twice a week interdisciplinary assessments. So each person we see goes from one clinician to the next in a four-hour period, and then we all sit together as clinicians and come up with a treatment plan, and then we bring the patient back and tell them the plan and see what they think about it. And so the patients are in each office one by one, and my student shadowed that patient. And this was a 30-year-old woman who had had widespread pain and um, had some back pain that was a little more prominent than other areas. But she went into the physician's office and sat there and listened and offered a bit of her subjective history. And this physician I know well, and she is careful with her language, but what she said was, well, if nobody's talked to you about the, the x-ray that you had, you know, you have a little arthritis, but it's not a big deal. Um, and then, you know, more importantly is all this other stuff. So no response by that patient in the observation of my student. And then they trot over to the psychologist's office and this young woman fell apart. She was so emotionally distraught by the news that she had arthritis. And she disclosed none of that to the physician. And that's the value of our team meeting is we could come up with a plan to help her correct that viewpoint, but we would not have known it if we didn't have that model clinically, right? So even when you think you're doing a great job, we might, we might not be, and that's really the challenge we face. So things we say all the time, right? Chronic, I, per, I personally have heard, um, is that what I meant to say? I have tried very hard at this conference to avoid the word chronic when saying chronic pain. I've eliminated it from my clinical day-to-day -day vocabulary. I say persistent pain, because I really do think that that has a different connotation, and I, I was a language major before I went into my profession. Chronic to a lot of folks means I'm not going to ever get better. Wear and tear, I will go to bat and say this needs to be erased from our language as clinicians every chance we have. I don't know why we still use this. Wear and tear, we're not machines, we're not cars, we're not bicycles. We have fantastic adaptive, resilient, and rejuvenative, uh, regenerative properties in our cells. And instability, this is something I'm not gonna to touch today, but it's something I talk about a lot in other contexts and other, other talks. Um, but this is not a good word either, right? And there have been other groups, Sloan and Walsh, for example, in 2010, who have demonstrated that when someone talks about their body in terms of degeneration, like wear and tear, that's closely associated with poor outcomes. 
So if your patient comes to you and you ask them what he thinks going on in your body and they say, ah, oh, I'm falling apart. I'm just worn out, worn myself out, you know. David Butler is a famous researcher and clinician and educator, and he, I, I love him for this. If a patient comes to you and they say, well, doc says I have a knee of a 70-year-old, but I'm only 52, David would say, well, how old is your other knee that doesn't hurt? And, of course, we all try to fit it into this framework, right? And the patients will say to me, I've used that line plenty, and the patients will say to me in response, well, it's because I've been walking on that side for so long. I just wore out the one. What? And yet, for the last two years, you've been limping away from it. How does this fit? How, we make these logical errors all the time, right? So I've got a patient, pretty incredible case, and um, this man is 67 years old. I'm going to tell you a little bit about his case and then some of the changes. But first of all, even though we know there's very poor correlation between pain and imaging, I want you to see what his imaging study said. He's 67 years old, and if you know that he's 67 and you look at this, you'd probably be doing a little dance at how awesome that is, right? Pretty much not much going on. And yet when I met him about a year ago, his chief complaints were these. He had constant pain in the entire back. He it was very diffuse and all over, but very high intensity pain in the lower back and some inter intermittent left lower leg in the anterior portion of the lower leg. Intermittent shooting and burning pains into the big toe, but he could not find rhyme or reason for when the pain increased. There was no direct mechanical cause in his mind, although I will say he avoided all sorts of things and we'll get there. So the pain started after a fall in the 1970s, 45 plus years of pain by the time I see this man. And he had, right after that fall, debilitating episodic pain and really felt ignored. He was in such distress, he went from doctor to doctor to doctor and felt everyone ignored him. And then finally someone said, oh, we'll do a surgery on you because we think we see something in there. And he reported he got 90% better after that surgery, but 10% remained, and those 10% were really tough. Those are his words. And after the surgery, I never missed another day in my work for 10 years. So we're thinking, fantastic, this guy keeps going. Not fantastic, actually. The way he was accommodating around this pain meant that 10 years was all he could manage before he had to quit. And by the time I saw him, I asked, what's your pain like now? And that's what he said. It's impossible for me to bend down and pick up a small object off the floor. It's been about six years since I bent down. Six years. And one of his goals later, after we started working together, one of his goals was to finally clear out his apartment. He had accumulated so many boxes and collections of stuff because he had simply stopped bending over. I mean, how do you get dressed? He still was managing to get dressed, but it was very difficult. And really interesting, the only reason he came my way is because he was seeing a different physical therapist in our hospital for knee pain. His back wasn't something he complained about much. He just accommodated and accommodated and accommodated, and then his knees were hurting him. And I'm not saying the two were connected, it's just how, how I was introduced to him. And then he had to stop working with that physical therapist because his knees were getting better, and she was asking him to do harder things to challenge his leg muscles, and that hurt his back too much, and he couldn't take it, so he came to me. Right. So I ask every single patient, what do you think is going on in your body? Why do you think you still hurt after 45 years? And this is what he said. I think he had a discectomy. That's not clear. The records we don't have from 1985. But I think he said, because the spine surgeon told him they took little bits out of his spine, I think he had a discectomy. But I, and I asked whether he believed there was any removal of bones, perhaps laminectomy. Don't know. Doesn't matter. 40 years later, here's what he said. I didn't feel my spine was strong because they took little bits out of it. So he's carrying this around with him for decades. And he also said, the surgeon told me not to do any more exercise, not to bend, not to lift more than 25 pounds, and to be careful doing things like laundry. So four decades later, he is still honoring these precautions. And now I understand that what patients hear in great times of distress, especially pre-surgically, they're not going to retain, they're not going to interpret accurately. It doesn't filter well, right? And that's why we have people like rehab specialists in the hospital and bedside helping folks understand what's possible, but we don't have any real connection after they leave the hospital to help folks through that post-operative phase when they're at home and trying to relearn how to do that stuff. So he stopped bending over in many different ways and um, completely stopped getting down towards the ground for six years, uh, as you know, and his surgery was in the 80s. I mean, this is just heartbreaking to me, and these are the kinds of cases that I see all the time. 
So how is it affecting his life when I met him? I did the evaluation in October, and he started in our rehab program three months later simply because of his planning schedule. So this was the picture in early 2017. He could dress himself, but it was hard. He stopped showering regularly because that required too much bending over, and he stopped cooking for himself. And he likes to cook. And he didn't pick up anything. And he also stopped the things he loved, which he can do without bending over. This man really loved to salsa dance. He had stopped doing that because the pain was too intense. So I'm going to come back to him later, towards the end. But here are some things that we might say. These are things that I have said over and over and over. I am not afraid of correcting what I thought was, was appropriate in the past, and now I'm informed by different research or different, uh, different sources of information. So think if you have anything on this list, rotated pelvis, forward head, these are things that physical therapists tend to say to folks, but if you do, if you're in PM&R or if you do any musculoskeletal examination, you might be using terms like this. And the tight hamstrings, man, they get a bad rap, right? How many male patients do you have who say, I've always had tight hamstrings, I can never bend down to the floor? Where do they get that idea? Some gym teacher in fifth grade tells them how tight their hamstrings are. Right? And that sticks with them. And then they think they're always at risk for back pain. This is what people might hear. And these are quotes from patients that I have. I ask every single person who comes to my office, why do you think you still hurt? And why do you think you can't move? Right? I need to have my pelvis fixed. It's always out and I can't get it back in. Now granted, some people walk around like this and they think only when they're symptomatic is their pelvis out and the rest of the time it's fine. I'm not saying everyone's a catastrophizer. But you gotta be careful, you don't know those people until you screen them. And if you're not screening with a PCS, then you don't know that these are the people who go from doctor's office to psychologist's office and fall apart. And if we use language that makes people believe that bending is dangerous, what do you think they're more likely to do? Ignore that? Perhaps if they're in the 36% of folks who have inexplicable resilience. But again, those aren't the people I see. So how much does asymmetry matter? This is, when I went to school, the first, the first day of class, we were handed out our flexible rulers and taught how to do a postural assessment with a plumb line background. And we were taught to think all kinds of things. And I went to a really prestigious school, I like to think. I was at Washington University with Shirley Sarman, and we were doing motor control, this and that. Neuroscience was the crux of, of our education, the foundation of it. It was in my first semester, right? And still. We're taught to think in terms of symmetries, but how much does it matter? So Cliff Bayer is a, is a really accomplished, um, blanking on the word, help me, really accomplished uh, fencing athlete, fencing, yes. And look at his arms, right? This is a stylized poster, but I want you to notice the musculature of his non-dominant arm and that of the one he uses all the time. And how about this guy? You guys know Usain Bolt, Usain Bolt? Did you see the New York Times publication this summer? I'm not sure if that video is going to work. I'll try. It might not. doesn't matter. It's just him running. And really, what's important here is analyses have been done uh, on his significant leg length discrepancy. And now they're starting to say maybe that's his advantage. But you come in my world, and that's usually talked about as a disadvantage and a cause for pain. How can both be true? I don't get it. And turns out posture really doesn't matter all that much. These are older studies. There are much newer studies. These are our big collections. So Christensen and his team, these are 54 meta-analysis of 54 studies. And they can't find a discernible causal relationship between posture and pain. It doesn't predict posture. Uh, posture doesn't predict pain. And there, uh, 2003, um, Veda, Veda, I don't know how they say their name, that's a longitudinal study on youth, so 15 and 16-year-olds, and then they followed those folks into their adulthood. And those who were categorized as having poor posture in their adolescence were not those that necessarily had pain later. They could not predict that. So are we helping our teenagers by telling them, stop slouching, it's going to ruin your spine? Right? Hip position pelvic alignment. And this is big, this is a big moneymaker in the PT world, I gotta say. And I did a lot of those get on one knee and do your assessments and the shift and the tilt and the ace, all these things. And I did I had treatments that worked. Right? Confirmation bias is rampant. 
And it's cool, but it's really dangerous too, right? You love it when what you think is gonna happen happens and then the patient walks away happy. But what happens when they come back to my office 12 years later and they can't get their pelvis back in by themselves? That's a problem for me and for that patient, right? So 1984, this is a really cool study. I know it's old, but it's hilarious because even in 1984, these researchers recognized the shortcomings of palpation techniques, that we don't have inter-rater or intra-rater reliability, especially when it comes to the pelvis. And so they came up with a gadget to measure the bony landmarks, and they couldn't find any relationship between leg length discrepancy and pain. And Hydes et al. in 2010, they took data that they had collected in rugby players from the years 2005 to 2007, and they did MRI, MRI studies to actually assess for the thickness of musculature around the core, specifically iliopsoas and quadratus lumborum, and then some of the thigh muscles, and they followed those people. And those with the largest discrepancy side to side, by the way, all of them had asymmetries. They're rugby players, right? They, they do a lot of unilateral loading, but that did not predict injury risk at all. And yet that person came into your office and you say, whoa, look at the bulk on this side and not on the other side, and you have back pain? Well, geez, we gotta even you out. And, and again, bread and butter of PT. I'm not ragging on my professional colleagues, but we need to question our logic for this stuff. And how predictive is arthritis of actually having pain? Now, I know it can be associated. I'm not disputing that. That's not the point of this talk. Biomechanics matter. Arthritis can be associated with pain, but it's not predictive. We can't look blindly at imaging studies and guess who has pain and who doesn't. And I had this lesson early in my career when I worked in a sports medicine clinic, and our major referral base was uh, we actually worked in, in uh, an active older adult community, so we had a lot of hips and knees replaced, a lot of them. And at the time, the, the uh, orthopedic group was, was really big into bilateral knee replacements. That's really fun to rehab, let me tell you. But um, time and time again, those patients who were too fearful of doing the two-at-one deal uh, two at once, they said, well, I'm just confused. You know, both my knees hurt, but the doctor's saying I need my left one done because that looks worse. But I keep telling them my right one hurts more. How? How? What? We got to check our logic on this, right? So sham surgery, we know. This is just one study. There are oodles of studies, amazingly, showing us that sham surgery has the same outcomes compared to those who get the real bits taken out. And uh, this study famously, and I know that group did a follow-up study showing the correlation between findings and pain, but this has pretty robust data. If you haven't read this study, uh, it ranges a large group of people, ranging in age from 20 to 80, and very clearly shows the prevalence. Up to 30% plus of 20-year-olds have degenerative discs and bulges, and no pain, right? So what do we do about this? Well, I'm proposing we change the narrative. And instead of trying to focus on everything that's wrong, try to promote something that this person can use to improve their situation, reduce the fear. So again, don't change what you're doing, but think about a different way to describe it. If you're doing manual therapy, are you really pushing a bone back into place? Maybe sometimes, maybe, but I'm still not convinced of that. Maybe if it's a clavicle. Right? But what else is happening? We know, we know that manual therapy works. We absolutely know that these things are helpful, but why? Is it because we're breaking up adhesions and fascia? I mean, if we could manipulate fascia with one fingertip, then everybody's hindquarters right now would have some trouble because you're putting a lot of pressure through those right now. Right? So narratives should do a bunch of things, in my opinion. So the narrative that we construct for explaining a pain situation to our patient or describing what we think is going on in their bodies should have some major components. Should definitely be biologically plausible and consistent with the science we know about pain thus far, right? You should avoid creating states of permanence. So what do I mean by that? I work in an interventional medicine clinic, an integrative clinic, very interdisciplinary. We have open dialogue with each other. It's fantastic. But I work with people who stick needles in backs of patients with pain, right? And time and time again, they say, oh, sir, Mr. Smith, we're going to stick a needle in your back because you have arthritis there and your arthritis is causing your pain. And then Mr. Smith trots to my office and says, okay, well, I'm excited about this procedure, but what is that needle going to do about my arthritis? Are they going to like scrape some off? 
are they going to do in there? And if it helps, then as people understand arthritis, how is a temporary reduction in pain going to help their arthritis when it's always there and it's only going to get worse, right? That's the conceptualization everybody has about arthritis, and that's what the data show us. Of course, degeneration changes. Our skin changes over time. Our spines do too. So offer opportunities for change. Where can we help somebody find an opening to do better, to help their body recover and get back to movement or things that they want to do with it? And I really want to emphasize wherever you can, try to find avenues where someone has internal uh, mastery or the capacity to develop it, not something that just fosters dependence. So if manual therapy works, fantastic. But that should never, ever be the only thing that someone's receiving because then what happens if that manual therapist isn't there to put their body part back in place? That's a problem for self-efficacy. So encourage recovery and movement. This quote comes from Greg Lehman, uh, Canadian physiotherapist and chiropractor. No movement should be off limits forever. And I truly believe this too. That's not to say that if you have a three-level fusion, you can expect those segments to move like they did before that. It's not what I'm saying. But a three-level fusion doesn't prohibit someone from bending down and picking up their sock or feeding their dog, right? But this is not the language we use, and I'm saying maybe we ought to. So how can we empower self-management if we're telling somebody that the problem they have is not something that they can solve themselves? So changing the narrative, what about adaptation? This is a fabulous concept, and Katie Bowman, K-A-T-Y-B-O-W-M-A-N, Katie Bowman is a biomechanist who has fabulous work out there, nutrition of movement, or movement nutrition, you know, really encouraging folks to think about movement as something we, um, we need the same way we need a varied diet, we need variety of movement, right? So the concept of adaptation or the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demand, this is a principle that every physical therapist learns, and this is something that guides our decisions on when to challenge tissue that's in recovery in order to promote healing and, and uh, regaining function. And we also know that in the fitness uh, world, this is a principle that everybody understands. And what's fascinating to me is patients also know if you go to a gym and you work your muscles, they get stronger and better but they don't seem to be able to translate that into their day-to-day -day lives, and so that's my job, right? So Katie Bowman has this whole fish-in-the-tank metaphor. Orca whales out in the ocean dive variable depths. They go up, they go down, they spin around, they turn, they twist, they dive lots of times in a day, and they are presented with multiple different dynamic force challenges to their structures. So their dorsal fin doesn't actually have cartilage like our noses and ears do. It is responsive to the forces applied to it. So wild creatures have an upright dorsal fin, and those in captivity do not. And they're not in pain. You don't see SeaWorld worrying about this, right? That's just what happens. Our bodies adapt to lots of things, and most of the time our pain alarm system goes off because we're asking them to adapt too much too fast, and that's what I have to teach patients. So what if we stop calling them intervertebral discs, right? Disc, that word by itself, what does that word mean? The language alone is problematic because disc conjures an image. It conjures an image of a specific shape that might be really vulnerable, like an Oreo cookie. It's a little melty on a warm day. Splooge out materials if you bend too much, or a jelly donut. And these are things that patients have said in my office and in the psychologist's office across from my office. So living adaptable force transducer is a nice uh, alternative, and this comes directly from the Explain Pain book, which was published a long time ago now, in 2003. But really, that's a better, more apt description of what these things do. They are so wonderfully supported and um, contained, they don't slip out of our backs, but that's not how people understand them. So it makes sense if they think they're slippable things that they might slip, especially if it's associated with severe pain, right? It's very easy for our brains to make that leap in perception. Very easy. Now, what about discs with running? What about that wear and tear idea? I love this study about uh, running. So this was recently published, and uh, Belavi, somebody help me with that name, Daniel Belavi and his crew. This is in 2017 Scientific Reports, if you can't read that. Running exercise strengthens the intervertebral disc. It makes it more hydrated. Now, caveat is, it's got to be slow running. There's my favorite confirmation bias of the year, because running always makes me feel so much better in my back, but I run like a, an 11-minute mile. <laughs> it's got to be slow running and fast walking, right? 
So walking is fantastic for a lot of things. Lots of people in rehab programs for pain prescribe walking programs, and yet they talk about it as if it's just beneficial for the aerobic aspects, right, and flushing stress hormones from the circulatory system. But what if we start saying walking is great for your discs? It's going to bolster them and make them uh, promote them to do a better job of keeping themselves healthy. So be aware of the research out there. Scrutinize it. Don't just take it at face value. I'm going to say that, but be aware. Where do people get most of their ideas about spines and spine health? Uh, in my place of work, patients, well, they're so busy, and this is probably the case everywhere. Patients go in, they get their MRIs or they get their x-rays, and those results are mailed to them in a letter format. And then their PCP dutifully says, here's the letter we mailed you, and sir, here's some interpretations. But that's way too late, right? Because the, the cat's out of the bag. And people read those imaging study reports, and they, they get all kinds of scared. And then they go consult Dr. Google, and they come back to you, and they say, what the what? What do I have in here? If you're lucky, they come back to you, actually, because a lot of people sit and stew on this, and they have no idea what's happening. And had they come to you, you might have been able to calm things down a bit more, right? So this group, McCullough, in 2012, did something interesting. They sent out those reports. But what they did was they made a comment section. They made a comment section including demographic data on asymptomatic subjects. Say, hey, if you have this stuff, you might not have to worry about it. And did that really make a difference? Well, what that showed was, interestingly, we can argue about the causal relationships here, but the statement group was significantly less likely to receive narcotics for symptoms. Now, does that have to do with distress? Does that have to do with pain levels? We'll never know. But this is a good-sized study, 237 people. And a similar, similar group, different approach, though, in 2013, uh, I know this is a lot of words, but I'm actually going to read it because it's got some entertainment value, and also it's pretty important to recognize this is the language that our patients are getting. You probably know this, but if you're not someone who reads imaging studies or their reports, you might not know this. So say somebody is going in for shoulder pain, right? And this is what they get, subtotal articular surface tear of the distal supraspinatus tendon with delaminating component and proximal retraction of articular-sided fibers up to two centimeters from the greater tuberosity. And the tear extends posteriorly into the infraspinatus, which remains mostly intact at the greater tuberosity attachment site. Prominent bicipital tendinosis with longitudinal partial tear, just proximal to the bicipital groove. And hypertrophic degenerative changes of the acromial clavicular joint. Now, show of hands, be honest, who has any idea what that means? Right? Good. I do, but still, lots of clinicians here, and lots of people don't. So if we don't know what this means, what do you think someone without any medical training at all thinks? Well, I can tell you what they think. They email me, and they say, I just got my MRI. This just happened last week. A gal I had evaluated just one time emailed me, and she said, Kate, I got my MRI report, and it shows a tear. That's no wonder my shoulders hurt, right? And so I responded to her, and I can tell you my response offline in the interest of time. So rewording the reports into language that actually makes some sense, and notice the interpretation totally changes, right? So hypertrophic degenerative changes of the AC joint Finding number three is interpreted as very mild arthritis or moderate arthritis, right? And these were the results. So people definitely had greater satisfaction. And that's the experience of the patient I mentioned who emailed me last week. She came back for her second visit. She said, thank God you responded to me. I was so worried about that. And that really helped. All right. So how do I do it? Here's one example of what I might say to a patient. And this is a common a common interaction I have because, as I said, I work in a procedure-based clinic. Um, it's a rehab-based clinic. We have a rehab program, but we evaluate people and, uh, comprehensively, and one of the options potentially on their care plan might include interventional medicine. And so, especially stenosis, right? This is a scary nasty in patients' minds. Stenosis. My tunnels in there, if they understand stenosis, which, by the way, most people don't, but they think, or they've been told, or they've looked up online that stenosis means their nerves are getting strangled. Or they're getting pinched really badly, right? And the research is very clear that we can't predict the level of pain or dis dysfunction or impairment based on a radiologist's interpretation of mild, moderate, or severe stenosis. But here's how I say it. I say our nerves are in there. They learn there a long time. They get used to all kinds of things. Most of the time, they don't tell us anything about it, thank goodness, right? 
But stenosis is like downsizing your nurse house. Just like you, if you had a four-bedroom house and your family decided for financial reasons or for lifestyle reasons, you wanted to get rid of some stuff and had live more simply, whatever, you downsize. I guarantee if you went from that four-bedroom house to a one-bedroom efficiency or a utility apartment where I live in San Francisco, that would be a tough adjustment. But that's not what people do. They tend to go bit by bit by bit, right? And then you get used to it. Siblings might grumble a little, but you all get used to it if it goes slowly enough. And that's what happens in stenosis. It's happening slowly over time, and our nerves get used to it, right? So what happens when pain all of a sudden comes into the picture? Is it the, fa is it the case that the stenosis just suddenly started strangling those nerves? The bones just found a way to behave like an iris does in our eye, like a camera lens It just suddenly sphincters off? No, it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that ever. But what does happen is you might have other events in your life that cause your body to respond. And we heard about those things in the resilience talks yesterday. We know there's a biochemical impact on our bodies with other life events, whether it be a change in your activity level that can contribute. Again, asking our body to do much, too much too fast and it can't adapt to the load well enough. So your folks who start to get exercising and do what you want and then their back hurts more, well, is it because you worsened their stenosis? I can't argue that way. But what might happen is you have an infiltration of some chemicals that irritate those nociceptors. And those things make nerves cranky in small spaces, just like you would be cranky if you finally got used to your smaller house and your family's all happy in there. But what if the in-laws come to stay? Now suddenly it's a smaller space without enough time to adapt and everybody's unhappy. So my question to my patient after explaining this is, do we really need to just move to a bigger house, which in the metaphor might equate to getting surgery, you know, auger it out, make more space in there? Or should we just tell the in-laws to get packing? And how do we do that, right? How do we get more space? We know that the infiltrates here are uh, largely chemical and um, protein-based, and so they respond to movement. And even in tight stenosis, our nerves can still move for the most part. I'm not saying there aren't people who need urgent surgery sometimes, but it's really rare, right? So get them moving, but do it in a way that can definitely help them understand this is going to help the problem, not cause more of a problem. Movement is medicine. We know that. So what would, I, what would you say to Mr. L? This is, um, this is all tongue-in-cheek. I, know, I, I know, know that nobody would really say these things. I hope not. But this is what people say to my patients out there. I know it because they come back and tell me, right? You just have to learn to live with it. Or maybe you should maintain those precautions. I mean, you still have pain, right? And what did I say? Um, I educated him about how it's perfectly safe to move even all these years after surgery, and especially because it's been 30 years or 40 years since he had the trouble. And I helped him understand that high pain levels are really likely related to the fact that he's not moving. And I use this other demonstration. If you were to hold your hand in a fist for three days in a row, it would be really uncomfortable for those three days, and then you get kind of used to it. But then if you kept doing it and kept doing it, kept trying to try feeding yourself like that, right? then it would probably cause some other pains elsewhere because that's our alarm system doing its job. And really what that at this point is saying is I need to move. I don't like this. This is not where I belong. I need to move. And that can contribute to more and more pain. Some ischemic effects take place, right? So I educate if you were to then start to uncurl this fist, how would that feel? And 80% of the folks can say to me, oh, it probably wouldn't feel very nice at first, but that's what you need. So now here we're all set up for them to expect a little soreness or maybe a lot of soreness, but to move through that and to actually get what they need. So how's he doing now? He finished our 12-week intensive program, and I cannot at all take credit for everything that he did because this is a comprehensive program, and he did it all. He didn't miss a single day or a single hour, and it's over 100 hours of treatment in the way we have this set up. And, and then I saw him at his graduation, which was, happened to be, um, or no, I saw, uh, graduation was within three weeks of his final class, and then I saw him a couple weeks after that because he was still working with me on a couple little things that were hard for him. But this is what he said. He had gotten back to dancing twice a week. He, was, he had gotten all those boxes out of his apartment, and his proudest moment was when a stranger on the street dropped something, and he bent down and picked it up for her. It was awesome, right? So perception. At a glance, who are these women? Hands high. Who's the black and white? Who is that? Adele, yes. And who's the other one? Mila Kunis, right? That 70s show, Ashton Kutcher. Well, this is what our brains tell us, and we can make sense of those faces, but that's what the photos actually look like. So our brains make a mess of things, but they're really just trying to do the best they can to give us a sensible story. 
And perception is, is a major factor in pain, and how somebody perceives their body will go a long way towards how they use it, how freely they can use it. And most of this is subconscious, but a lot of it is changeable. And I think if we all start shifting the language that we use, and we start finding ways to build resilience and strength and find ways to help our patients feel empowered to make a change and do things that we know is good for them without instilling fear, that we can start to make a shift in this whole disability curve and actually move in the right direction. So I think we're at time, and I'll happily entertain any questions. Thank you for coming. Comment. Yes. Pain patients as opposed to patients in pain. Yes, I, I agree with that comment. And I think, yeah, these are people living with pain, people living with persistent pain. That's a very excellent point, and we can all do better. Yeah. Thank you. Any other thoughts? Any disputes? I would love to debate anything. Ed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Thanks, David. Hello? Hi. Ah. <laughs> uh, that was great. Thank you. Um, you didn't use that, that phrase about comparing degenerative you know, uh, joint disease to degenerative facial disease, which I've been using a lot. Oh. With folks that, that, and that does actually uh, make a difference. Um, yeah. I, I also mentioned that you know, when the radiologist reads the, uh, reads the images, they are comparing you to an 18-year-old who's never had any problems at all. And ah. that also helps them understand, oh, well, of course I'm not an 18-year-old anymore. So. That's right. That's a good, good slant. So um, what Ed was saying earlier is he's heard me in the past say something that uh, I stole from somebody else. But um, it's funny how we consider internal changes, which are natural parts of aging, to be very, very different from external changes, which are natural parts of aging. So you would never go to your mother-in-law and say, geez, you have degenerative face disease. Right? We don't say that, but we say degenerative disc disease all the time, and that is a big, scary nasty for patients. They're degenerating on the inside. It's terrible. Thank you. <laughs> That's funny, right? I know. Gets a laugh every time. Well, I'm happy to speak with anybody if you want to hang around. I'm going to turn the mic off, though. And thank you again for attending and for being here the last day, and I hope to see you at some of the other PT tracks.